Well, around here, ordinarily we uh, teach from the Bible, so you should be able to track down a Bible in the rack in front of the chair, uh, just directly in front of you there. And we're in Matthew chapter 2 today, and I'm going to read the passage, then we'll pray and, and we'll spend some time thinking through, okay, what does this mean for us? So Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we'll put verses up on the screen also so you can track along that way. But Matthew 2, starting in verse 1, let's read through verse 12, and then we'll pray and get to work. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from, from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now as we've opened your word that you by your spirit would speak. We're praying that you would help us this afternoon to consider who you are and what you've done. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to become a people who are worshiping the King of Kings. So we commit this time to you and we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. The Bible is pretty clear on this idea that the announcement of the King of the Jews, the reality of Jesus Christ, the pronouncement of who he is and what he has done actually divides humanity into two different camps. It tells us that there are some who will hear about Christ and they will bow down and worship. They will surrender to him. They will trust him. They'll place their faith in him. They will gladly receive him as King and Lord. And then there are some who, having heard the message, will actually resist that notion, will be opposed to that reality, and will go against this king and his ways. And the Bible tells us that in places like 2 Corinthians. It tells us that for some, the message of Christ is like a fragrant thing that draws people or compels people, but to others, it will have the stench of death. And so we find here a, a, a situation, even in the Christmas narrative where there's a case study, where you have two different kinds of people. You've on, on the one hand, you've got the Magi who are coming to Jerusalem to worship this king. They are coming to receive him, to express their adoration, to give their gifts to him. But on the other hand, you've got this individual Herod, and when he hears about this new king, he is put off by that idea. He's offended by it. He's threatened by it. He's disturbed. And therefore, he takes action against it. 
But the Bible tells us that those are the two camps. And so as we come to a Christmas Eve service and we're confronted with the king again, we have to think, which camp do I gravitate toward? Which camp am I going to find myself in today? Am I going to be with those who are worshiping him? Or am I going to be one who is resisting him? Let's get to work. This, this sermon is called Worship and War. And we find this warring idea typified by King Herod and all those in Jerusalem. Look at verse 3. When King Herod heard the news, when he heard that there was a star, a new star in the sky, and it had provoked the interest of foreigners, and they come traveling to his town, over which he rules over, and they say, there's a new star in the sky, tell us where this new king of the Jews has been born. When he hears that, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. He hears the message of this new king, and he is troubled by it. So troubled, in fact, that later on in this very same chapter, he's gathering information so that he can try to exterminate any child who would fit that description. And we see that in the second half of chapter 2. But he's disturbed by him. And, and the reason is, he realizes that his position and his life are now in jeopardy. He's the king, King Herod. He's the one who's supposed to be in charge. He's the one who gets to call all the shots. And we learn from the Bible and from history itself that this dude is not a good dude. He's very self-centered. If anyone opposes him, he feels threatened by them. He will try to get rid of them, including his own family members, according to history. So Herod, when he hears about King Jesus, he is disturbed. And all Jerusalem along with him. The whole town, the whole city is in fact disturbed by this announcement. And I was thinking this week, okay, why did the town itself, why was it troubled by this announcement? And I began to think through why they might be a little bit embarrassed. If they're residents of the capital city and they are the people of God, and all of a sudden, you've got foreigners coming in and telling you, hey, we are aware that your king has been born. And what they do then is they nervously laugh. Uh, my wife and I, we went to see one of our favorite comedians in Rockford, and uh, they were on a tour, so it was him and a couple other guys that we really enjoy. And so they came into town, they performed at the Coronado, and we went to see them. But here's what they do. When they get to a, to a new location, they take a field trip. They, they go to local places, and what they're doing is they're gathering content for the show. They're trying to make some connections, like, oh, so we're going to poke fun at stuff that you're familiar with. And all three of them did that, and some of it was very, very funny, but the headliner, the guy that we went to see, when he got to that part of his bit, it didn't work because he was talking about something that, as I understand it, probably most of the crowd had no familiarity with. He started talking about an auto museum in Roscoe. Have you guys ever heard of that place? Some of you are like, yeah, I think so. How many of you have been there before? Okay, wow, that's more than I would expect. But when he starts telling jokes about that place, everyone just kind of nervously laughed. Like, uh, yeah, I, I think that would be funny. But we just had no idea about it. I think when these magi show up and they say, your king has been born, the reason why they're disturbed is they had no idea. And, and, and it was lost on them then. They're, they're troubled by this. Wait a minute. Our king, our Messiah is here? Well, this warring spirit hears the news of Christ and, and is appalled at it. And so Herod 
is frustrated by this, and he begins to gather information. Look at verse 4. Having heard this news, he calls together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asks them where this Messiah was to be born. He's saying, okay, if this is true, tell me where I can locate this individual. And he starts to gather information. He's doing reconnaissance. He's trying to figure out, okay, where did they get this idea? And where would this child be born? And then in verses 7 and 8, he calls the Magi back, and he's, again, trying to gather more information because he's threatened by this king. So look at verses 7 and 8. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. All right, church, is this a sincere intrigue? No, it is not. He has no desire to find this child to actually submit himself to the new king. He has zero desire to actually find out where this child would be so he could also worship this child. No, he is threatened by this child, so he's gathering information to try to terminate this child, to try to get rid of this child and the threat that he poses. I was thinking about it this week, and I was concerned because there are some of us that will show up to a Christmas Eve service, and we will ask all the questions, and we will pretend to be intrigued, but we have zero interest in submitting to the Lord. There are people in here and and at churches all over the place today who really have no desire to find the Lord for the sake of surrendering to Him. It's all a facade. It's all just gathering information so it, can safely, so it can be safely managed. If I know enough about him, if I know how to talk about him, then, then I can pretend that I follow him. But listen, the problem with Herod is the problem with most of us. He has idols of the heart that he feels are threatened. He has things that he cherishes that he understands if this child really is who he's claiming to be, then my idols are in trouble. And that upsets me. Most of us wouldn't have the courage to say it exactly like that, but we have the same problem. We have things that we cherish. For instance, being in control, being setting up our own kingdom. That's the that's the business that we get really, really excited about. We're gonna make all of our own decisions, we're gonna call the shots, we're gonna tell people how they can function in relationship to my kingdom. And when I find out that there's another king, that offends me. When I find out that I would have to surrender my life, not to my will, but his will, that's offensive to me. And that's what's going on with Herod here. And that's what's happening with many of us. We recognize that the Lord threatens our autonomy. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. He also threatens our glory. We believe that we are at the center of the universe and everything should revolve around us as a part of the human experience. And when we find out that there's another who is in fact the one for which everything ought to relate to, and it's not us, we're offended by that. We have all these different idols of the heart that the Lord threatens, and so we can stand in solidarity with King Herod and say, yeah, this child is a problem. If I were really to allow my life to align to him, that would change everything. And I don't like the thought of change. And I don't like the the thought of surrendering to him. So he is, King Herod is an example that many of us can relate to. 
We often believe that the Lord threatens our happiness. That if we really followed him, we would have to give up on the things that we imagine would make us the happiest. We often misunderstand him to be the one who is going to take away the stuff that gives us significance and purpose and meaning. And I got to tell you, frankly, that's wrong. One of my favorite verses, I guess I shouldn't say favorite, I should say it like this. It's one of the most helpful verses that I've ever found in the Bible. It comes from Jonah chapter 2. And um, the story of Jonah, if you're familiar with it, he was a messenger of God who was sent to a city that he didn't want to go to because he didn't like those people. And he didn't think that God should have anything to do with them because they were such an awful people. And so God sends him in that direction and he says, I'm not going. And he hops on a ship and he goes the exact opposite direction. And then he takes a nap. But God sends a storm and it threatens to capsize the ship. And then all the sailors are freaking out and they are going, what on earth is happening? And they find out that this individual Jonah is running from God, the God of the universe. And they go, okay, well, what do we do? He says, throw me over and you, you guys will be fine. And they're like, we're not about to throw God's guy off our ship. So they don't know what to do and they're rowing as hard as they can and they can't get back. And finally they just pray and they say, God, please don't hold us guilty. We don't know what this joker did, but this isn't our choice. This was his idea. And they throw him over and the sea goes completely calm and they begin to worship. These unbelieving individuals now are believers in Yahweh. And Jonah swallowed in the belly of the fish and he has one of those One of those days where he goes, huh, I think I screwed up here, right? He wakes up, he's in the belly of the fish, and he's uh, realizing how silly it is, and he prays a prayer to God, and he's very grateful for God's saving work and for God's ability to be the the kind of God who's gracious and forgiving and all these different things. But in Jonah chapter 2, he gives us a very, what I think is a very important verse of the Bible. And he says it like this. This is Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. I'm going to quote it from the version that I, that I prefer the most when it comes to this particular verse. It says this, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. He's praying, realizing I really messed up here, and he's acknowledging what I did was wrong, and he expresses it like this, those who cling to worthless idols are forfeiting the grace of God that could have been theirs. He was holding desperately to this idea that he was such a good person and and God had no business dealing with these others. And he was clinging on to that so tight that he's like, I'm not going there. I'm not going to bring your message to them because you might forgive them. And he's clinging to his idol of his own self-righteousness and his superiority and the fact that he doesn't like them. And then he comes to the conclusion, what I was doing was very foolish. I was hanging on to something thinking this would make me happy. But what I came to realize is I was forfeiting the better thing that God had in store for me. I was forfeiting the grace of God that could have been mine. That's what many of us do. We're clinging to something and we're thinking, this is it. This makes me happy. This is the thing that I'm living for. And and when we start to feel that God is threatening that, we're like, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. You can't touch this. This is mine. And Jonah tells us, what we are doing is foolish. You're holding on to something that you think will bring you happiness. But what if, what if true happiness is found in what God wants to do? What if by releasing those things, you're actually free to receive from God his grace and his mercy? 
What if this king doesn't threaten your happiness? He is the way to it. What if Jesus isn't the one who's come to kind of spoil your party, but he's the one who's kind of, he's coming to make it a party? What if he's the one through which you could place your faith in him and experience joy everlasting, joy that never ends? What if he's the kind of king that you could surrender to and he would improve your life? He would help you to understand your purpose and your significance and the identity that you so desperately need. That's the kind of king that we're dealing with today. Many of us are duped into thinking he's a threat when in fact he is the source of joy and significance. And that leads us to the second point here. And that's the invitation to worship him. Herod resists him and wants to kill him. But there are a group of people here in our text who rightly worship him. The Magi. And we find here in our passage a a few different features of their worship. Both how they go about it, but also why they do it. So the first thing I want to point out is that they have this worship that's being expressed and a desire to move toward Jesus. Look at verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. What are they doing? They're believing in a promise, and now they're ordering their lives according to that belief. They're moving toward the location where they believe they could come into proximity to that king. So there's an astrological sign, a new star shows up, and they're like, wait, this is, our, this is our department, okay? We better figure this thing out. They start doing all their homework. What does this mean? And they, they stumble upon the documents. They stumble upon the, the Jewish Bible, and they go, okay, here's what this means. This new star is an indication that the king of the Jews has been born. We better pack up. And you guys know, I mean, we speculate on all kinds of details about these individuals and how many and how far they traveled and all of that. The Bible doesn't give us a ton of details, but it does tell us this. When they see the star and they perceive it to be the promise of God that a new king has been born, they pack up and they move toward him. They take a trek and they go to where they think they can locate him. What I want to suggest to you is if you want to be a worshiper of him, it should look something like that. Meaning, you should be willing to make sacrifices of of your comfort, of your time, of your resources, of your schedule, and say, I am going to do whatever I can to move in the direction of the place where I believe I could experience more of him. If you want to be a worshiper, I think it might look something like this. I think it might be the willingness to sacrificially give of your time to read the Bible where he is explained and articulated to figure out, okay, if he's here, if this is his word and I get to know him here, I'm going to design my life to experience more of him. Or it might look something like this. You're going to make some sacrifices to be in locations where you know he's going to be talked about. You're going to say, okay, Sunday mornings, I I like to sleep in, but I'm going to change my schedule so that I could go to a local church where the king is talked about because I'm moving toward him. Faith expresses itself in obedience by moving toward those environments. That's one of the ways in which they worship. But then we get a couple different motivations for why they and us should worship him. The first is, the mission of God is a global mission. This can easily be lost on us, but there is a mission of God that is for all peoples in all places. 
And um, most religions are constricting, and they try to describe the kind of people who should be a part of it, the things that they would do. But biblical Christianity moves in the other direction, and it says, no, 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 there is a message of a king who is for all peoples and all places. And so the fact that we have magi, foreigners, in our story of the birth of Christ reminds us of that feature. God is a global God, and he invites worship from all places, including McChesney Park. He wants us to join in this incredible story of his saving work. And, and too often, we begin to kind of refine the plan to be people who are like us, people who look like us, who think like us. The Bible consistently pushes us in a different direction to say, no, 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 there is a global mission, and that is worthy of our worship. In fact, Matthew points it out in a few different ways. He tells us in the the uh, earlier in chapter 1, he's describing all the people, the lineage. And in there, he includes four different Gentiles. And then he's got these magi here. And then the rest of the book, it's a Jewish audience reading it. But he keeps saying, this isn't just for us. This isn't going to stay in the Middle East area. This is, we're going to be here on Christmas Eve in McChesney Park, worshiping this king. It's a global mission, and it fulfills the promises of God. Isaiah chapter 60 puts it like this. The Magi showing up is alluding, alluding, A-L-L-U-D-I-N-G. It's alluding to this reality. Isaiah 60 reads like this. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you and the riches of the nations will come. God is worthy of our worship because his mission is expanding to the ends of the earth And you and I get to be a part of that. We should worship him. We should worship him also because his sending of the son is the fulfillment of the promises that he's been making all along. There's a thing that Matthew's doing here as he's describing these events. He keeps reminding us that everything that's happening is happening according to God's plan. And he keeps saying it. He says, look, this happened in fulfillment to the scriptures. This happened. All these things happened as to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. He said it in verse 22 of chapter 1. He says it in verse 15 of our chapter. He just keeps reminding us, everything that's happening is happening according to God's plan, including this. And in this story, we see it because the king, Herod, is asking, wait, where where do you think this child may have been born? And they bring out the Bible, they bring out the Old Testament, they bring out the prophet Micah, and they start reading it, and they say, oh, it's right here. This child is here in fulfillment to what God has said many, many years previously. In chapter 2, verse 6, it reads like this. It says, Bethlehem, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And what's going on here is we're supposed to say, he's here. He's here. This king has arrived in fulfillment to God's plan. And the reason why that's good news for us today is because God has a plan. This is, it's not off the rails. He's not wringing his hands. He's not trying to figure out how to get it back on track. God has a plan, and everything is working according to his plan. We should worship him. Well, let's look at how they worship in the following verses of our chapter. They, they worship him in very specific ways here. They get to him. They go to his presence, to his nearness. They Try to get in close proximity to him. Look at verse 9. 
After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. That's worship. We want to be led by God to God. We want to be led by God to the place where his presence is obvious in Jesus Christ. When they get there, this is no ho-hum experience. This is joy. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. True Christianity is an experience of joy. It's something where you begin to realize what God has done for you is so incredible. You can't even, you can't even hardly wrap your head around it. And it fills you with joy. When they see this star and it resting on this place, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. May we be worshipers like them who even our posture communicates he is worthy. We bow down and we say, this is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we sing about it and we talk about it, but we also express it even with our body language. Then they opened their treasures and presented him, this child, they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These costly and incredibly valuable realities, they bring to him and they say, Here's what they're communicating. This is what I think is true Christianity. They're saying, you are the treasure that's more valuable than anything else. You are the thing that has true worth. And we're bringing our really costly, but to them, these, these small tokens of appreciation. They're saying, you are worthy of all of this and more. You are the king of kings. True Christianity is recognizing Jesus is the treasure better than anything else, and the source and fount of all good things that we have. They worship him by going to him, by being overjoyed by him, by bowing down in worship to him, and by giving gifts to him, and, and they experience the wisdom of God. They're warned, don't go back to Herod, but go home by another route. It's a benefit of worshiping God. He gives you his wisdom. So here's what we've seen then in this case study. The good news of the gospel divides us into two different camps. Those who resist the Lord and say, I don't want him to touch my life. I don't want him to tamper with anything here. And those who say, he is worthy of all the worship and all the praise. We need to be the kind of people who come to that conclusion and bow down and worship that king. Let's surrender our lives to him and trust him to be a good and gracious king who is willing to die for his enemies so that we could be his glad and joyful subjects. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now as we've reminded ourselves of the Christmas story, we're praying that you would help us to be true worshipers who see the beauty of Christ and who surrender our lives to him, to his lordship, to his ability to rule and make decisions for us and, and give us the faith to believe that by surrendering to him, we are trading up that by letting go of our worthless idols, you're replacing those with your grace and your mercy. And you're giving us joy everlasting, a joy that could never be taken from us. So Lord, I pray for all of us in here. I pray that you would help us to worship him this afternoon and with our entire lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.